All right, as we, uh, as we get going this, week, this morning into this message, I'll remind you that we're in our Five Directions sermon series. This is a great time to be in this because our Five Directions really help us to understand who we are, what is Southeast about, um, how, how do we go about doing this thing that we call exploring the way of Jesus as we learn to love God, love others, and bring life to our community? That's our mission statement. That's who we believe that we are called to be. That comes uh, from Jesus telling us the greatest commandments are loving God, loving your neighbor. And as we do that, as we live that out, we bring life into the community that we find ourselves in, whether it's this immediate community that we find ourselves in on Sunday morning whether it's the community that we gather with together as we do all of our uh, events that we do with Chicago's and into the community, whether it's the neighborhoods and the schools that we all go to or the workplaces that we're in each and every week, we go out and we live out the mission of loving God, loving others, and bringing life into the places that we find ourselves in. That's who we should be as followers of Jesus. We should be life givers in the places that we go. And so as we come into this series, what the five directions helps us to do is helps us to live that out. It's really about as you explore the way of Jesus, as you follow the way of Jesus, what are those things that we do that become rhythms of our life? And I want to be really cautious about this because last week I talked about that it's God who reaches out to us. It's God who reaches out to us, who's, as I, as I mentioned before, I'll probably say again in this message, I love this picture of God standing on this porch inviting us home that it is God who sets the, the sidewalk out before us, who calls us home. We respond. We come in. And we join this party that God has created called the kingdom of God. And so he is the one who invites us in, and we respond to that. But what does it look like then as we follow Jesus? What changes? What are the rhythms that take place in our life? What does that look like? And so here at Southeast, what we've done is we've identified five directions. Now, I don't think these five directions are incredibly unique. I think this is a part of the Christian faith, no matter where you are. There's this idea of connecting with God. There is this idea of sharing our faith with others, which we come to today. And then there's a few other directions we'll talk about over the next few weeks. But what's, I think, critical about them is how we talk about them. How do we talk about connecting with God? What makes this a unique place? How do, we, how do we understand that? And how does that drive who we are? How does that drive our mission? And I talked about last week, again, this idea. It is God who reaches out to us. And I talked last week, again, about this idea that sometimes we think of this kind of mountaintop thing, that there's God up on this mountain, and we have to figure out how are we going to climb up and get to God. If we think of the Christian faith as all of this work that I have to do to somehow uh, get God's favor, to somehow reach God, that somehow I'm doing all the work to get there. And I said, listen, if we think about it that way, we've missed the point. That it is God who reaches to us. We are responding to his grace, his mercy, his love. And so connecting with God is him moving to us and us responding to his love. And that is a critical understanding for us to have. Because when we have that understanding about God, it changes how we share our faith with others. Because if we start from a place of that I have to do all the work to get to the top of the mountain, that I have to do the work to get to God, then I'm going to look at everyone else around me and I'm going to judge their journey. And I'm going to say, well, that, that path over there, that I don't know. That's not the way I'm doing it. That doesn't know. I don't think so. Or you might look and you might say, hey, I'm a little further along in this path. Look at me. I, I'm doing something right. That is the wrong way to view it. 
instead of recognizing and seeing that it is God's love and grace and mercy that we respond to. Man, to share this idea, to share this idea that it is God's love for everyone. It is God who is the one welcoming, saying, come home. Like to be a part of that, to realize that's our call, that just dramatically shifts, dramatically changes how we understand what we are called to do. Because if I believe in a God who says, come home, everyone come home, then I'm gonna change the way that I perceive the world, how I understand what I'm doing. What, what am I sharing in my faith? Because I wanna share good news. I want to share good news of God's love and grace and mercy, of a community that welcomes all of us home. That is good news. I like that story. And that's the story that we get to talk about today. That's the direction that we get to talk about. Because when we have this relationship understood, what this is to look like, then we begin to understand this horizontal relationship. Love God, okay, and now love others. And what does that look like? And how does that play out? And how do we do that? So today, I want us to go to a passage. And in this passage, uh, we find Jesus at a party. And we don't get the host's name. Apparently, the host's name is not important. We're simply told that it was a prominent Pharisee, meaning he was a respected religious teacher in the community. He was a leader in the community. And in this setting, throughout this context that we find in this really cool story, we see how we're supposed to live out this idea of inviting, what that's supposed to look like. It reminds us how to host a good party and what a good party should look like and why Jesus cares about who is invited to that party. So listen to this. This is a great story. It's in Luke chapter 14. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There, and man, there's so much going on right there. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent, so taking hold of the man, he healed him and he sent him on his way. Now, there's a, I told you, there's a whole bunch going on here. So our first thing we get... Like one word in, one Sabbath. So, so just one Sabbath day. This is the most holiest day of the week. And one Sabbath, meaning you're coming to a Sabbath day, not one Sabbath is more holy than the other. This is the holy day. And so this holiest day of the week, we come together here. And because of this holy day, there's all this debate about what can you do? What can't you do? Uh, what, what are you supposed to do on the Sabbath? How, how does that work? Because we're trying to keep this day holy. And so there was all this debate about what do you do with the Sabbath? And the reason for this, there's all kinds of understandings behind this, but the Pharisees were trying to figure out if we, if we get this wrong, God is not really for us in the way that he needs to be for us. We have to get this right. They're focused on how, how do I get this right? How do I figure out what I'm supposed to do on this day? Now, I, I realize and I recognize that maybe the Pharisees have a little bit different conversation in mind, but I sort of feel like sometimes I have this conversation. What, what am I supposed to do on the Sabbath day? Sunday is our Sabbath day. It's our holy day. And you think to yourself, well, how do I keep this day holy? Is it okay for me to go mow my grass? 
Should I probably not say things about my neighbor I might say on Saturday or Friday? Uh, am I, can, can I go see the Colts and, and what can I drink while I go see the Colts? Like, is there a question about that? Like, how does this all play out? And I don't know if you've had these thoughts before, but you know, this is the idea. There's some tension here. Jesus is just walking right into the tension. And so I want you to imagine, you probably have some friends that are like, oh no, you shouldn't be doing that on Sunday. Oh no, 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 no. You know, I, I, I'm with it, man. I understand why I can't get Jesus chicken on Sunday because that makes sense to me. We need to keep that. This is a holy day. So you can go to a different restaurant because they don't hold it the same way. That's fine. And you're kind of going, this seems silly. Why are we debating this? But again, this is the tension Jesus goes into. There's a tension. Why is it holy? What makes it holy? What's special about this moment? And I think this is good for us. I think this is important for us to think about. Why does this matter? Why do I put priority about coming into this space and gathering with God's people? Why am I taking time to listen to this and think about this? I could just watch it or listen to it later, but you decided this time, this hour, this matters. Well, that's the question they were having. I want to be careful here because it's really going to be easy to bag on the Pharisees, but I think the Pharisees, they were just trying to figure it out. They wanted to understand, how do, we, how do we keep this day holy? and What does that look like? And Jesus leaned into that for them. He, he, he understood their desire. I think he wanted them to keep it holy, but keeping it holy, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And then we come into this situation, and this is where it all sorts to come together. See, any kind of work on the Sabbath day was frowned upon. Any kind of work. But how you define that work then was up for debate, right? Okay, so, so let's, let's back up a second. Let's think about these Pharisees. So they're, they're trying to keep it holy. They're trying to do the right thing. So they begin to say, well, what if you do this much work? What if you walk this? What if I do this? Can I, can I do this much? If I go over the line, is that too far? So they're very careful about that. So they're defining it. So Jesus feels this tension I mean, he knows this tension they've got. Listen to what it said. I love this. It says, he went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. Jesus knew what he was doing. Jesus ate with all kinds of people. And in this situation, he knew, I'm going into this situation. They're going to watch to see what I do. They're trying to figure out how, how am I teaching? What am I teaching? Am I breaking their rules? What does all that look like? So he knows how this is going to go. He knows that he's going to use this tension and then he's going to teach the guests at this party, not just the Pharisees, but everybody who came to this party. He's going to teach them a lesson by healing this man. He teaches them a lesson about compassion and mercy, love. I think what's cool here is he teaches us compassion and love and mercy never take a day off. But there's something additional here I don't want us to miss. When we think about Jesus having a dinner, we think of people pulling up in our driveway, right? We think about them knocking on our door. We think about them coming and sitting inside and sitting at our table. But the homes of Jesus' time didn't look like that. It didn't look like us having a party at our house and saying, hey, uh, you can come over at six o'clock and you know, people you know, come in, they knock on the door, they come inside and you know, it's just sort of nobody really knows what's going on. But in Jesus' day, this looked very different because you've got courtyards, you've got openings, you've got people being able to see what's happening. This party isn't like a party in the back room of a dining room in the back of a house. This is like taking your house and flipping it around backwards 
and putting your fire pit and putting your barbecue and putting all of that in the very front yard so that everybody can see. In my house, we have a pool on the side of our house, and if you've been there, you know that we can typically see everybody walking by. Um, I, we've talked about changing the fence out because we want to put a fence in that is more open. And you know, everybody's like, well, then people will see who's at your house. And I'm like, that's awesome. Like, we want people to come, and we want people to be there and party with us and hang out with us. So this is like us having our Spamapalooza in a few weeks on Labor Day and flipping around backwards, having it in the front yard and being like, everybody can come and see what we're doing. Everybody can be a part of it. But there's a tension there because then everybody knows who was invited. And in Jesus's day, then everybody also knows who wasn't invited. Everybody can see who is inside the courtyard having this meal with Jesus and the Pharisees and all of these other people invited to the party. And everybody can see who the host of the party thought didn't belong at his party. So there's a tension in this again. So who are the guests? Who's not invited? It's in that detail now that we're going to find the lesson that I really want us to talk about today. Because the man that Jesus healed wasn't invited to this party. This man is out on the street, an outsider in full view of those who are inside. So what Jesus does in this moment, he heals this man, has this quick debate with the Pharisees, you know, telling them, is it okay to heal or not? What do you think? I really don't care what you guys think. I'm going to show you that love, compassion, and mercy don't take a day off, and I'm going to heal this guy. It doesn't matter what you think. And I also recognize Jesus is saying in this moment, I'm going to break down that barrier. You said he's not invited. He is invited. And I'm going out to him. So it's a huge moment that we see here. I can't ignore everyone outside while I enjoy everything else happening inside. Jesus looks at these guys as he does this healing. It's apparent right here. You cannot You can't sit there and ignore everyone outside this house and party inside this house. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you will be repaid. Yeah, right? I want you to invite me back to your house. I just bought you pizza. The least you can do is invite me over and get me something, right? But Jesus has more of a point here. For these people, like us, it's easy to invite the people we're comfortable with. These are the people you're supposed to invite to the party. They know you. You know them. They know how you set your table. They know where your dishes go. They know that they're okay to open your fridge and get a drink out of your fridge or even grab a cup. We all have friends like that, but Jesus is like, no, that's not who I want you to invite. I don't want you to invite all the people that know every detail. I don't want you to invite all the people that know exactly where to walk in your house. I don't want you to invite the people that don't have to ask where the bathroom is or don't know where the door to this is or whatever. He says, I want you to invite the people that walk in and go, I've never been here before. I don't even know my way around this place. I don't even know what I'm doing here. He says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. 
Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I just love this moment because I sort of imagine that Jesus does this healing. Everybody's shocked. He begins to tell the story. Well, don't invite those people. Invite these people instead. And then this guy is like sitting there. And I just have this, I I can see him in my head. You know who this guy is. He's like eating. He's like drinking his food. He hears Jesus say this. And all, all of a sudden he like puts it down. He goes, oh, blessed is the one. All right. Blessed is the one who will eat in the feast of the kingdom of God. And everybody looks over and goes, why is Bill talking? What? (laughs) Just eat your food. Like, he does this every time we invite him. This this guy just shouts out, right? I I love this guy, though. This man saw the reward of Jesus' command. He shouts it out. But I do wonder if he saw maybe the most important truth of here. The reward reward isn't only found in our own salvation, but in recognizing that because of God's grace, there is more room at the table than we could possibly imagine. That's the reward. So this guy shouts out, yes, blessed is the one who will feast in the kingdom of God. But man, I just want him to go further. I want him to go to the next level and be like, and looks around and realizes there's a bunch of empty chairs around. And then gets up from his seat, throws his food down, goes out and starts inviting people. Well, that's exactly the story then that Jesus tells. So Jesus begins to tell people about inviting, inviting people, seeing this party in a new way, looking at how you do things in a completely different way. This is no longer about a dinner party anymore. I don't know that this story was ever about a dinner party This is always about the invitation for others to come and experience Jesus. So Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. And I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another one said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back. He reported it to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. And I want you to hear those four words again, because man, as we do these five directions and you're trying to figure out who is Southeast, what what is Southeast all about? This story comes up over and over and over again for us. There is still room room. God's grace is bigger than any one of us and enough for all of us. There is always more room at the table. And every seat at that table that gets filled should bring us joy. That sums up this direction 
and the essence found in his words. There is still room. And I love this because I, I'm going to add a little bit here. I think it's okay to do this with this story because I, 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 I see something happening here. Did you see no, no matter how many people he invited, there was always still more room. His job wasn't finished. He keeps inviting and there's still more room. So I imagine this servant, because again, this is a parable, so we can play with it a little bit. I imagine this servant, he comes in and he's like, I invited everybody. Nobody wants to come. They've all got better things to do, apparently. He's like, well, then go invite everybody else. Just invite, I don't care who you invite, everybody in town is welcome at this party. Everybody is welcome at this party. So he goes out and he runs and he's like, hey, guys, I've got good news. Everybody's welcome at the party. To his surprise, everybody shows up. They come running in. They all sit down. He looks around and he goes, how are there more seats? I set this up. I'm the servant, right? I I put this together. How are there more seats? What is happening? And so what I've always thought about is that the, the, the master in this story, somehow as he goes running out to get more people, he's like in the back room and he's like, quick, start putting more chairs together. I don't know if he's got like Ikea boxes in the back or something. I don't know what he's doing. If he's got them like shipped and he's got them in a garage, but he's like putting them together and he like sticks them out and he's like, wait, wait, what's this? What's this? The guy comes back and he looks and he goes, how are there more seats? This doesn't seem right. How is this possible? Runs out and he invites more people and he comes back and he looks, there's more room. There is still room. You will never, and I will never get to a place where God's grace runs out for all people. I'll never get there. It is bigger than I could ever possibly imagine. There is more room than I could ever imagine. There's still room. These four words, guys. There is still room. So here's God standing on the porch, (laughs) inviting you in. He stands there and he looks and he says, hey, go invite some more people. Go invite some more people. I I want you to be a part of this. I I want you to understand what it's like to invite people the way I invite people. I want you to see what it's like to have unlimited grace too. Try it. Invite everybody. Then I sort of wonder, and we say this around here too, some of us then would be like, well, you know, can we build a fence too? Because I got to be straight with you. Like there's people, I'm not sure. I, I just feel like maybe we, God, I mean, honestly, we, a little gate. I, and, and then here's what's great. I'll stand at the gate. You can trust me with that, Right? No, no, you don't get to be at the gate. Here's what I want you to do. Take that fence, tear it down, go in the back room, find where I'm putting those Ikea chairs together and start using some of those fence boards to make more chairs. That's what I want you to do. So the moment that you think, well, I could be the gatekeeper, I could build the fence, I'm really good at that. No, don't do that, please don't do that. 
rather than closing the doors, rather than limiting the seating, we need to build bigger tables, find more seats, and invite more people to experience the party. That's the captivate value. Let me close with these words of the Apostle Paul. It's a letter, he church, uh, a letter to a church he started in the ancient city of Corinth. Listen to this. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, again, I want you to highlight these words. So there's, there's four words. There is still room. And now these words, first importance. I am not sure how to put this, but Corinth was an absolutely screwed up church. They had all kinds of ethical, moral, they had spiritual issues going on. The list of stuff that was happening at Corinth, if you got an email, it would say not safe for work, open at home. It was really bad. And Paul wrote at least two letters to this church telling them that they needed to get it together. Yet in all of that, in the middle of all this arguing about how they need to figure themselves out because they're so messed up, he stops and he calls this the matter of first importance. Listen to this again. He says, For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul is talking about the power of cross. That Christ showed this world in all its ugliness of sin was put to death on the cross. Jesus showed on the cross that what humanity is willing to do when it is confronted by the full extent of God's love and grace and mercy as it was in the life of Jesus. That when confronted with an absolute love, grace, and mercy, this world in all of its sin will try to kill it. But the story didn't end there. Because in the resurrection, we see God take what the world called death, that only he could turn into life. And through Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, we see nothing is outside of God's power to transform, to renew, and to restore One author says it this way, the resurrection is the good news that God in Christ is committed to the renewal, reconciliation, and the resurrection of all things. Paul could have made anything first important. In fact, churches do this all the time. But the church fails when the good news for all people revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is superseded by anything else. You hear that? In this church, we're going to follow Paul here, that the matter of first important is Jesus's resurrection. That is the first importance Because the church fails when the good news of Jesus for all people is superseded by anything else. He goes on, he says, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, Paul says, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What an awesome letter. Man, as Paul is talking to these people, I just feel like, listen, guys, don't, don't miss it. You have been invited to stand on that porch. God's grace and mercy to you, to me. And Paul would go on, he'd be like, I'm the worst of sinners. I don't even know why he let me be around here. I think Paul, in that moment of honesty, says, look at yourselves. And we're all a mess. But God's grace is big enough for you. And it better be big enough for everybody else. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to see you, you and me. He says, we're therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. He's like, somehow he looks at us and says, go out and invite others. Tell everybody else about this party. Welcome everybody to this table because this is good news. And as you've heard me say, and you'll hear me say over and over again in this place, if it's not good news for everybody, it's not good news for anybody. And the good news is that it's good news for everybody everybody. (laughs) I get to talk about this. You get to talk about this. Like you get to share the good news of Jesus. That his renewal, his restoration, his love and grace and mercy is for this entire world. What an awesome responsibility we have. So get to the door. Don't walk straight in. Don't try to build any gates. Just start shouting the good news of Jesus to everybody you meet. And then we'll be the church that God is calling us to be. God, we are so thankful to be reminded that the good news is good news is good news is good news. Father, help us to be people of good news. You stand and invite us in with grace that knows no limits. Fathers, we come to this moment as we worship together. May we sing this morning being reminded that all of us have been invited by your grace. And as we sing, may we be reminded to be people who live in that grace who extend it, who show it, that that's the story that we tell this world. It's your name that we pray today. Amen.